Yeah. Um, let's stand, if you're able, and it's read from God's Word. We're carrying on in our series in, in 1 Timothy, and we are reading from 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 to 15, the whole of the chapter. <clears throat> First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, rather She is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, which shines a light into our dark hearts, Lord, which cuts between spirit and soul and joint and marrow and brings life to us, to strengthen us according um, to the truth of your gospel, to sanctify us according to your spirit. And Lord, we ask now that you would bless the preaching of your word, that it would yield much fruit in our lives. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Now, this past Wednesday was International Women's Day, if you didn't know. Um, and to mark the occasion in the United States, the, the White House awarded Elba Rueda the International Woman of Courage Award. Now, the only problem is that Alba is not a woman. Kind of a bit of a problem, right? (laughs) She's a man. Okay, but in modern speak, we have to say, no, she's a transgender um, woman. I mean, you you can't make this up. (laughs) And really, this is, is just another example of the sinful tendencies of mankind. I mean, really, Ecclesiastes said there's nothing new underneath the sun. And 
these sinful tendencies of ours, a specific manifestation of these is that we desire to rebel against the way that God made us because we think we know better than God. And we see this even back in the Garden of Eden. Um, Adam abdicated his, his leadership role as, as the husband um, and Eve assumed to lead as the wife and the result was that she was deceived by the serpent. We're going to get, get into that. You know, there's some juicy stuff here in this text, as I'm sure you've heard, some politically incorrect stuff. Bring it on. Um, but we also see this in the early church too. Okay, this context to which um, 1 Timothy was, was written, church at Ephesus, the false teachers there appeared to be subverting God's design for men and, and women um, in, in the church. And what was the result of this false teaching that was going on in, in the Ephesian church? Well, it was causing divisions, and it was also leading to unsound practice in the church. So what we're going to see in, in this morning's text is that Paul instructs Timothy on how to correct false practices um, that had arisen in the churches, and um, he, gives him he gives him clear instruction on how we are to conduct ourselves in the church today. And overall, what we're going to see is that sound doctrine naturally leads to sound practice. So sound doctrine naturally leads to sound practice. So let's dive straight in here. Um, first point um, is one mediator for all from the first seven verses. Let's read the first two verses. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Already one of the, the most important activities that we can possibly do as Christians is to pray. I mean, we are in a unique position compared to um, unbelievers, and that is that we can bring our needs before the creator of the heavens and the earth. We can do that anytime we want, any time of the day. And especially we do it today as we gather together as, as the church. And this is just an incredible privilege that we have, that we can come through Christ into the throne room of God and present our prayers and petitions before him. I mean, it's, we need to recover what an incredible privilege that is. And so this is why Paul urges the church here in verse 1 to pray. Whether it's in our personal devotions every morning when you read the Bible, or whether it's corporately gathered like we are today on, on, on every Lord's Day. And Paul gives us in, in verse 1 some of the key elements of, that are to be included in our prayers. And the first one is a supplication. That's basically bringing our requests before the Lord. Then intercession, that's praying on, on behalf of others. We should always remember to, to lift up others' needs um, in, in prayer and pray for the salvation of others. Um, and thanksgiving, giving thanks for what the Lord has, has done for us and, and how he's answered prayer and how he's provided for our needs and, and who he is and his character and, and his attributes. These are all things to be thankful to the Lord for. Now, we also instructed to pray for all 
people. Now, does that mean that we've got to pray for every single person on earth, all, what, six billion of them, or whatever it is? Again, that's an impossible task, right? And um, the context of this passage shows us that that is, is clearly not what is intended here. So what does it mean to pray for all people? Well, if we, we carry on in the rest of the text, we see that we are instructed to pray for all types of people, all kinds of people. And this is clear when we read in, in verse 2, which elaborates on some of the types of the people we should pray for. So we should obviously, we should pray for poor people, we should pray for um, you know, unbelievers, whatever, these different categories of people. But verse 2 picks up that we emphasizes that we should pray for rulers and our kings, those who are in high positions, those who rule over us, basically our government. Now, I must admit, there are many times when the last thing I feel like doing is praying for our government. Okay, it's easy to get sickened by the corruption that we hear about on a daily basis. You know, we drive along Link Road and we, we nearly mess up our car with all the potholes that are there. Um, just seems to be a lack of interest in, in governing this country, um, in you know, maintaining law and order, just the, the, the very basics you would expect in in a country, and it's, it's, as South Africans, it's easy for us to complain about our government. I mean, it's often the, the, the bright conversations that we have. It's easy for us to get despondent. Okay, but what we have in this verse is an incredible promise from the Lord. Instead of getting despondent, you know what? There is something that we can do as Christians. Yes, we are probably not going to end up in parliament and able to change all these things, but there's something much more powerful that we can do. And what we can do, and we actually instructed to do, is to pray for our leaders. Why? Well, it comes with a promise. Okay, verse 2. We pray for our leaders in order that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Isn't that reassuring? Do you want to live in peace and quiet here in South Africa? <laughs> Pray for your leaders. Hey, our God is sovereign over our rulers. Okay, he's the one, as Daniel 2.21 Daniel 2, says, he's the one who removes kings and he sets them up. So therefore, if he is able to do that, entrust our leaders to God in prayer. And what should we pray concerning them? See, we should pray for wisdom and strength and doing their job properly, but ultimately we should pray for their salvation. That they would repent of their sins and, and trust in Christ. And why should we pray for their salvation? Well, it's rooted in the very nature of God. And we see this as the text move on, moves on in, in verses 3 and 4, which says, This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So the salvation of sinners is rooted in who God is. Yeah, one of God's names, and it's 
used in the Old Testament as well as God our Savior. Even before the creation of the world, God planned the redemption of his people. And the first promise of God to save his people in in, in Scripture is immediately after the fall. Genesis 3.15, the first gospel promise that the seed of the woman, a, a, a descendant of Eve, will one day come and he will crush the head of the serpent. God is going to send a savior in the line of Eve who's going to destroy the power of sin and death and save a people for God. So the fact that God is savior is rooted in his very action, his work throughout scripture, because we see the rest of scripture from Genesis 3, 15 onwards is all about God's, the, the, the outworking of God's plan of redemption to save a people for himself. So in verse four, it says that God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So does this mean then that it is God's will for every single person on this earth to be saved? Believer and unbeliever, God's going to save everyone. Well, if we know if we, from other parts of the scripture, well, not all people are saved. Okay, only those who believe in, in Jesus Christ are saved. And you see that in Matthew 25, you see that in John 14, verse 6, you see that in Acts 4, 12. The Bible clearly does not teach universalism. It does not teach that all people go to heaven. But we also know from other parts of the scripture that God's will and his purposes cannot be thwarted. Like look at Job 42 verse 2, Isaiah 46 verse 10. God is going to do what he's going to do. He's going to accomplish all his purposes and his plans. His, his will cannot fail. So do you see on the surface here, there appears to be a bit of a, a problem in the scripture. If God desires all people... If that is every single person on earth to be saved, yet not everyone is saved, well then doesn't that mean, well then God is not sovereign. God is, he's got his hands tied. He's, he's unable to accomplish his purposes. Well, in order to make sense of this verse, as in any difficult verse in scripture, we always need to, Firstly, we need to interpret Scripture with Scripture, and we also need to look at the context. And what is the the context here? Well, we've just seen from verses 1 and 2 that when Paul talks about all people, praying for all people, what what does he mean? Every single person on this planet? No. Instead, he's referring to all kinds, all types of people, and so that's how we've got to. That's the context. That's how we've got to interpret this all here. And we also need to understand the the context of the early church, which is that it came, it emerged out of Judaism. Now, for many um, of those early Jewish Christians to accept that Gentile believers were now also included in, in God's covenant promises that. Um, he made with Israel, that was a big ask. That was a, 
a lot of them couldn't get a handle on that. And that's essentially why you have Acts 15 in the Council of Jerusalem. So what we see here, when we, when we see the text which says God desires all people to be saved, what it's saying is that he's referring to all kinds of people, specifically believing Jews and Gentiles. All types of people, not just Jews as it was in the Old Testament. A people chosen by God from every tribe and language and people and nation, as Revelation 5, 9 says. Okay, that is the scope of God's plan of redemption. It is to include all types of people, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. That's what it's getting at here. But what we also see is indeed something of, of God's disposition towards salvation. Okay, God delights in the salvation of his people. Okay, that's why he sent Jesus. And as Ezekiel 33, 11 says, but he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So verse 5 continues, it says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So because God saves a people out of every nation and tribe and tongue, all kinds of people, this means that God is the God over all those nations. Okay, not every nation has their own God. They may think they have their own God, but those are just idols. There's ultimately just one God. And it's he who rules and reigns over all peoples. He's the one God who created all these peoples. And there's only one mediator between this God and his people, Jesus Christ. Now, why do we need a mediator? Well, as we sung this morning, God is holy. And no sinful man can just freely approach him. Yeah, therefore, we, we need a mediator, someone who can mediate the presence of God to us and sort out this, this issue of sin that is in the way of us getting to God. And our verse 5, we've seen that, that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. And what this tells us then is that, well, quite obviously, there, there are not many ways to God. Yeah, you can't. You know, all have your truth and, and that truth can be different, but it will all get to God. There's, we can't ultimately get to God through Muhammad or Buddha or Shambhu or the ancestors or praying to Mary and the saints. Those are all illegitimate ways of getting to God. Why? Well, verse 6 tells us. There's who gave himself as a ransom for all, Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So why is Jesus the only way? The only mediator between God and man? Well, it is only Jesus who has dealt with the problem of sin, the very thing that separates mankind from, from God. Only Jesus laid down his life as a ransom, a sacrifice for sin's 
on the cross for all. Okay, their context, not every single person on earth, all kinds of people. Okay, only he bore our sins in our place. Only he forgave our debt that we owe because of our sin. And what this means then is that he alone has made a way for sinners to be reconciled to a holy God. And brothers and sisters, this is the heart of the gospel message. So it continues in verse 7. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So Paul now um, draws this section to a close by declaring that it is for this that he was appointed a preacher and apostle. Okay, for what? Well, this gospel that he has just declared to us. The gospel through which God saves all kinds of people, Jew and Gentile, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And it is this gospel that Paul preaches, and, and also we know that he was being specifically and uniquely called as an apostle to the Gentiles, to all kinds of people. And so what we see is that this was God's intention from the beginning, that his salvation would not just be focused on the, the, the Old Testament people of Israel. His plan right from the beginning, we see this, for example, in, in Genesis 12, when, when um, God makes a covenant with, with Abraham, that right from the beginning, God's plan was through Abraham to bless all the families of the earth. And that now comes to fulfillment through the gospel and through God's plan of salvation through Christ to bring salvation to all kinds of people. So let's bring us to our second point and last point, men and women in the church. So in the light of the above, that there's one God who saves people from all nations through one mediator, Jesus Christ. That's the heart of the gospel message, which Paul calls in, in 1 Timothy um, 1 verse 10. He calls that the, the gospel message sound doctrine. In the light of that, God's people then are to conduct themselves properly in the church. We, there's got to be a congruency between our belief and our practice. Good belief is going to lead to good practice. And so what's been happening in the church where Timothy is a pastor is that because there's been false teaching, it's led to all sorts of chaotic practices unfolding in the church. And so Paul's now picking out some of those problems that were created by this false teaching, and he's bringing some um, correction into it. And he's particularly speaking into the role of men and women in the church. So verse 8 addresses men. It says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So it appears that the, in the church context, which Paul is writing, the men in the church weren't praying. Now some, some things are perennial issues and a, a lack of prayerlessness is always seems to be a, a battle in the church, specifically among men. Okay, there's a tendency of us to, or men to, to be passive, sinful tendency to be passive for the, the, the things of the Lord. And um, 
Paul is saying, no, you guys need to pray. And get out of your passivity and man up and pray. Okay, also, there, were, there, were, there was evidence that they were fighting with each other. Okay, so he instructs them to cease their quarrels, sort things out, and pray. And this is obviously not just uh, something unique for the Ephesian church, but it's instruction for us as, as the church today. An exhortation, not even just for men, but for women as well, that we should all be um, in fervent prayer. And before the Lord um, daily, and obviously, um, you know, in the context of, of the gathered worship on, on the Lord's day, like today, come before the Lord in humble heart and, and uh, in, in peace with each other as well. Okay, then he moves on to woman in verse 9 to 11. It says, Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self control not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, it was common in, in the Greco-Roman world for, for women to, to dress very extravagantly and in so doing draw attention to themselves. And so Paul is is instructing women here to, to not conform to those the excesses of, of, of that culture. He's calling them not to, to go over the top in their, their dress and their appearance. He's not forbidding jewelry or he's not forbidding women to know, look after their appearance, okay? Because he says, you know, be respectable, okay? Instead, he's, he's calling women to, to a godly modesty, okay, respectability, rather be a woman of, of substance and integrity than be so obsessed about you know, external things. Saying, let your faith shine through your good works and learning in, in, in quiet submission. Also an encouragement for, for women to learn, to study theology, to, to, to study the word. And obviously, in, 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 in submission, not, in other words, not being, going about in a domineering and, and loud manner. And then comes to verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, evidently, in the Ephesian church, uh, there were women who were teaching in the services and exercising authority over men. And what's Paul's response to this? Well, he forbids women to teach or exercise authority over men in, in the church. I'm well aware that this verse is probably one of the most controversial verses in the Bible these days. Okay? It wasn't that controversial 50 years ago, just bear that in mind. But today's culture has changed, granted. So is Paul being a chauvinist bigot? Okay, is this just his opinion, um, which was that he was telling us that's not binding on the church today? Surely our culture has changed since then, and surely it means that, well, there's no reason why women shouldn't teach or be pastors of of churches. Well, 
it's not just Paul's opinion because Paul is exercising his apostolic authority here. Okay, when he says, um, I do not permit a woman, well, he's not just speaking as any old dude. He's speaking as an apostle appointed by God. So it's not just his opinion. And the thing is, this is not just one isolated verse that's um, not, you know, it's kind of a, a freak verse compared to the rest of, of the teaching of Scripture. This is reinforced throughout Scripture, as we're going to see. Um, 1 Corinthians 14, 34, for example. As in all the churches of the saints, the woman should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. So we see from, from here that the ban on women teaching is, is not specific to that particular context of the Ephesian church or the Corinthian church, but it's applicable, as 1 Corinthians 14, 34 says, to all the churches of the saints. That, that includes our church. So what exactly is forbidden here? Well, the clear teaching of the scripture here shows that it, what is forbidden is women teaching and preaching to the church. So a context such as this, obviously. Okay, because the thing is, preaching and teaching is an authoritative act in itself. Also, it forbids women exercising authority over men. Obviously, there's connection between teaching and authority, but what Paul has in mind here is the holding of office, um, specifically of office of, of pastor and elder. And that's what we're going to look at in, in chapter 3. So these, there's a connection between chapter 2 and, and chapter 3. Um, because both the office of pastor and elder involve the exercise of authority over the church. That's what those offices do. And thereby over men. Okay, what this verse but does not forbid is woman teaching other women, okay, or woman teaching children. So it, it, is, it is completely legitimate for women to have teaching gifts. Okay, a woman has blessed the church with teachers, but the expression of that gift um, is to be exercised in, in, in a biblical manner. So what is then the basis of this? Is this just Paul's chauvinism coming through, his bias and all that? Well, verse 13 carries on, and verse 13 gives us a reason for why Paul has made that prohibition. And that reason is, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So the reason that women do not teach and in the context of the church and, and, are, and to be pastors and elders is rooted in how God created the world. Okay, there's what we call a cosmological reason for this. It's rooted in the very way God has the fabric of creation, the order of nature. And so that means, if it's, <laughs> the reason for this is rooted in creation, it means it's, it's binding on us. Because Adam was created first, he exercises, and Adam being the representative you know, of, of man, um, he exercises the rights of the firstborn, which is authority over Eve. Uh, 
Yeah, so it's reflecting the order of creation here, the initial creation of, of man and woman. Um, both created equally in God's image, both image bearers before the Lord, but with different roles and responsibilities. One is not more superior to the other. One is not inferior, equal before the Lord, but with different roles and responsibilities designed to complement each other, men to lead and take responsibility, not to dominate and to, to control in an ungodly way, but to serve and love sacrificially and humbly. Um, women to submit to husband's leadership, as we see in places like Ephesians 5 and, and Colossians 3, um, to nurture and, and, and care for, for the household. These are good and godly and wonderful things. Yeah, like 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So what this all means is that for a woman to preach or exercise authority as an elder or a pastor is to subvert God's created order. It's, it's unnatural. It's contrary to, to God's will. Now, Paul doesn't stop there. He gives another reason for, for this, and that's in verse 14. And he says, and Adam was not deceived but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So this is reminding us what has happened in, in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3, 13, okay, the whole of Genesis, beginning of Genesis 3 is, is how the serpent deceived Eve, and then Adam also ate. And verse 13 tells explicitly that Eve was deceived by the serpent, um, not Adam. Now, why did that happen? Well, it happened because they both reversed their God-ordained roles. Okay, Adam neglected to protect and lead his wife. And he allowed her to be put in that vulnerable position where there she is talking to a snake. <laughs> and then... From Eve's side, well, she presumed to take upon herself the, the leadership position in the marriage. And she didn't call her husband, hey, hubby, there's a snake here. What are you going to do about it? You're going to stamp on its head and you're going to kill it. No, she engaged with it. And she was deceived by it. And then Adam was deceived as well. So it's not saying that um, Eve was more sinful than Adam. It's just pointing out the fact here um, that um, men and women are hardwired differently to each other. Okay, God has appointed biblically qualified men to lead his church. And a reason that is drawn out from the text is that they tend not to be so easily deceived. That's not my opinion. That's the word of God. Okay? And so the point of all this is that we should keep to the God-ordained roles. That we shouldn't assume then to be cleverer than God. And I'm completely aware of um, our church context. Probably most of the churches in our area yeah, in Upper Highway land 
Well, they have woman elders. Some of them even have woman pastors leading them. And it, it's, it's seen as, as the norm. And, you know, what could possibly be wrong with, with that? Well, we need to understand that, well, it, it's a very novel practice. I mean, that's only, this has only been happening the last 40 years or so, if we look at church history. And that's precisely due to the rise of, of the feminist movement, which has, is the origin of a, a lot of these ideas. Um, and what we've seen is that churches, some churches have tended to move with the culture. They've felt the pressure of the culture and wanted to conform to the culture because it just seems the sensible thing to do. Um, instead of being faithful to, to Scripture. Now, the problem is that if you compromise on this issue, which some people say, well, it's not such a big deal. If you compromise on this issue which, and, and really disregard clear teaching of Scripture, as we've seen, what else are you going to compromise on? What else are you going to read and you think, ooh, you know, that, that doesn't really conform to my sensibilities. You know, it just doesn't feel right. You know, the, the whole culture is, is saying something totally different. How, I don't want to, you know, we don't want to, you know, not fit in with, with kind of the, 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 the mainstream here. Well, unfortunately, what we're seeing is when there's a tendency that if, Churches, denominations compromise on this issue, on the woman's issue. Invariably, they compromise on the homosexual issue and affirm homosexuality um, as, as, as not a sin. The previous church I was in, the Anglican church, well, that's pretty much where they're at now. In the 70s, they affirmed women pastors and women elders, and right now they have just voted to Church of England bishops just voted to affirm blessed same-sex marriages. Now, I know there are many churches who would affirm women pastors but not necessarily agree with, with homosexuality, but that's just an inconsistency <laughs> because to get to women pastors, you, it's the same route you get to affirmation of homosexuality. Okay, it's the same, what we call the same hermeneutic, the same way you would interpret the scripture because culture becomes your benchmark and not scripture. And really, what even we're going to see is churches start to affirm homosexuality more in our area. We're already seeing it, actually. The kind of what you would think would be broad evangelical churches, they're beginning to crumble on this issue. And it, I would say it comes down to taking, not taking a tough stand stand for scripture on, on the woman issue in, in the first place. These two issues are related. It's important to see that. So clearly false teaching then would lead to, to unsound practice, and that's certainly what we see in, in this uh, church context that Paul is addressing. Last verse, verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Wow, <laughs> what a text we've been looking at. Um, so does this mean that only women who have children will be saved? Absolutely not. <laughs> okay, that would 
just fly in the face of the clear teaching of Scripture from Old Testament to New Testament. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So what on earth then is this verse telling us? Well, like with any difficult passage, and this passage, there have been a lot of them, um, remember the context. What's the context of this of these verses, well, in the past two verses, Paul has been rooting his argument in Genesis two and three. Okay, this order of creation, and um, we saw that in the garden, Eve abandoned her role, taking on the leadership role of her husband, and the result of her disobedience, well, she sinned, and then um, God cursed them, and the curse that God pronounced on the woman in Genesis 3.16, which is that she would endure pain through childbearing. So now, here, Paul, looking at all this, is saying that by fulfilling her role, okay, the woman's God-given role is to bear children, as the mother, be a mother. By fulfilling her God-given role, as difficult as that may be, because of the curse. Now it's talking here, initially she in verse 15 is still referring to Eve. Through another woman, through a daughter of Eve, will one day come the Messiah. The promised seed that God had, prom- that, that God had appointed to crush the head of the serpent, as it says in Genesis 3.15, that he, this seed coming through the woman, would bring salvation for all of God's people. So through the woman, God brings the promise of salvation, brings the Messiah. And this salvation, as the rest of verse 15 says, is to be received by faith. And genuine faith is demonstrated through continuing continuing in love, holiness, and self-control. So bring all this together. Well, we've, as we've been looking at this passage, we've been seeing that false teaching leads to unsound practice. Now, it's, it's easy for us to look at all those people out there and all those flaky churches out there and those outright heretics, you know, preaching all the stuff on TBN or whatever you want to look at. But what about Closer to home. Well, what unbiblical teaching do you still hold to? Is it that God will bless me if I'm a good person? Is it that God will just wink away my sin? What unbiblical practices do you still practice? Are you a functional atheist in that you pray once in a blue moon? Prayerlessness, that's sinful. Or are you constantly quarreling or causing divisions or holding on to, 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 to anger? Well, we know that Romans 3 tells us that we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of, of God's glory. And one day we're going to stand before our holy God and we have to give an account and on our own, we be required to pay the debt that we owe to God ourselves. 
and face God's judgment on our own. But we know, I also know, we heard in Ezekiel 33, 11, God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. And he desires that all kinds of people be saved, a people out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And because of this, well, he's provided a way. He's provided a mediator, Christ Jesus, the Messiah, the promised seed of the woman who gave himself as a ransom for sins, a ransom for us, who paid our debts that we owe because of our sin. And, and he died on the cross and he rose again on the third day. He was promised, as Galatians 4, 4 to 5 says, that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So brothers and sisters, repent and trust in God's son, the only mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. Trust in the one who laid his life down for sinners that he might redeem a people for God. Forgiven, adopted as his own sons and sealed by the Spirit for eternal life. Amen.